0: You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Continuing in our series that we've titled "Union with Christ," in this series we're just unpacking the central truth, or what J.I. Packer calls the definition of Christianity: that when you trust in Jesus Christ, He not only forgives you, but He He joins His life with yours and your, li- your life with His, such that you are now in Christ. He is in you, and that changes everything. And each week, we're just kind of walking through uh, this doctrine and talking about different facets of life that it changes. Today, I want to talk about how it changes the way you encounter the entire biblical story, which means it changes the way you encounter your story um, and the deepest longings of your heart. So with that, I want to go to Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn there with me? Luke chapter 24 is where we're going to start. Um. I'll give you a second to turn there. Luke 24. I'm going to read it in a moment, but as you're kind of turning there, I want to start by making a confession. Okay, so I want to start with a confession. Um, If if there is one part of my life that I want to keep blocked off and keep other people from seeing and knowing about me, it would be my garage. Um, There's my garage. Uh, my wife Carrie told me that if I'm going to show this picture, that she made me promise that I would fix the garage door this month because it doesn't open or shut automatically. Um, and then she made me promise I would clean it out this month. So my missional community can hold me accountable to this. Uh, I don't know for you, maybe it's like your, your floorboard or your, your laundry room. For me, it's my garage. I have different angles. There's another angle. Um, I have to think I got another shot of it. Yep. There's that's awesome. Beautiful. Um, As you can see, my garage is kind of jam-packed with all kinds of random stuff. There's bicycles, there's toys, bed frames, Christmas decorations, lawn stuff, furniture, Brian Wilkins' ladder, as you can see there, (laughs) has made its way into my garage. Um, There's a pool in the background there, a stroller, there's a random door, that white door there laying. There's a baby bumper, which we haven't needed for months, uh, that's just kind of sitting there. So um, I, I basically have what Sandra Richter calls dysfunctional closet syndrome, except it applies for me to my garage. So Richter uh, talks about how we have this, you know, if this, if this is you, you know, you're, you're, you have this kind of stressful, frustrating relationship with your closet because it's so disorganized and you don't know where things go. Uh, when you need something, you don't know where to find it. It's just all kind of thrown together and it's overwhelming and you don't even know where to start. I would argue that with a garage, it's even worse, though, because you don't know like, what kind of creepy, disgusting things you're going to find. For example, I opened the blinds in my garage uh, this week and found this. <clears throat> That's like 10,000 dead flies, so um, you're welcome. Uh, basically, I know there are things in my garage that I need but opening the door and kind of stepping into it can be overwhelming because I, I don't know where things are, I don't know how it all fits together, and there's some weird, gross stuff in there that I don't want to deal with. And the reason I share that story with you is because I think it's a really good picture of so many Christians in our culture when it comes to our relationship with the Bible. We have dysfunctional Bible syndrome. So we know that we know we need the Bible, at least most of us would say that, we would like assent to that, like, yeah, we need the, something, the Bible's necessary, we need it, but opening the door and stepping into it can be overwhelming, because we don't know where things are, we don't know how it all fits together, and if we're honest, there's some weird, gross stuff in there that we don't know what to do with. So raise your hand if you've ever struggled to read and understand the Bible, or am I the only one? Okay, the rest of you are lying, most of you raise your hand. Um, <laughs> It's complex, right? It's dense, it's so diverse, so many different books and authors and genres and all this ancient history and names we can't pronounce and so it's it can be confusing and it can be difficult to navigate and understand. On top of that, there's some pretty weird stuff in there. Like for example, on page 3 there's a talking snake. Okay, don't pretend for a second like that's not weird, guys. That's weird. That's just weird. Um, There's all these strange laws about shellfish and blended fabrics and all these plagues and blood and sacrifices and angels and demons. And it's easy for us to kind of look at the Bible and just go, okay, what's the point? And I think that's why many of us treat the Bible the way I treat my garage, which is to say we just shut the door and you just don't go in there unless you like really, really need to find your weed eater or something. But like you you just don't go in there. We might listen to a teaching on the Bible once or twice a week, but for the most part, by and large, Christians in our culture don't really read the Bible anymore. Um, researcher, uh, Lifeway Research President Ed Stetzer says over 80% of churchgoers don't read the Bible regularly. Uh, that's similar to what we have found in our context. So back in the summer, we sent out an anonymous Uh, church-wide survey to help us kind of assess where we are, where we need to grow as a church. And one of the questions we ask, again, this is anonymous, one of the questions we ask is how often do you read the Bible on your own? Like how how regularly do you engage the scriptures? We had over a hundred members participate in this survey. And what we found is that 28%, so about the same as what Stets are saying here, 28% of our people said they read the Bible on a regular basis. So, this is an area where I think most of us can admit we struggle and need to grow. And and maybe this doesn't apply to all of us, but it's certainly been true for me at many points in my journey of following Jesus. And I often still struggle with reading the Bible. I'm not more spiritual than you. Um, Every year, when I do my read through the Bible in a year plan, I always get behind, right? I miss a day, I miss several days. When I'm reading through Leviticus and 1st and 2nd Chronicles and places like that, I find myself going, okay. What in the world is the point, and what does this have to do with me and my life? And I'll give you one more quote. I think uh, A.J. Sherrill is a pastor and, and, and biblical scholar, and he says this is really why we struggle and, and don't really read the Bible anymore in our generation because we've kind of lost the point or the vision for why the Bible matters in the first place. And here's a quote. Here's what he says. He says, uh, Neglected, dusty, and crisp, are three characteristics that describe the average Christian's Bible that sits motionless from the bookshelf in many American homes. It often rests just low enough on the shelf to be noticed, yet it remains high enough to go untouched. And recent estimates purport 3.9 billion Bibles have been purchased over the past 50 years. But there's a vast difference between best-selling and most-read. I read this week that one one guy said the Bible is the best-selling book never read. So much has been written on the topic of biblical illiteracy within the 21st century post Christian society. But in contrast to many recent voices, perhaps the problem is not that Christians don't know how to read Scripture. It's much more foundational than that. Instead, the vision for why the text even matters is lost. So the question I want to ask this morning as we talk about union with Christ, and we're going to get there, is really simple. Why the Bible? Like, what's the point of the Bible? What what does it have to do with you and me? Why did God give us the Bible and then command us in places like Psalm 119 to read it and reread it and eat it and chew on it and digest it and and memorize it and meditate on it and store it and hide it in your heart? Like, why? What is the point of the Bible? Because so often, like Tazi said this morning, we get lost in the weeds and the details, right? So what's the point? All right, well, that's the question Jesus is trying to answer for us in Luke chapter 24. And so I want you to look there with me. Luke 24. We're going to start reading in verse 13. Um, We'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Luke says That very day, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're talking about the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, has been killed. That's what they're discussing. And while they were talking and discussing this together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So imagine this. Uh, you're walking on the road to Emmaus. You're talking about what's happened. Jesus suddenly appears, the resurrected Jesus, and now he's walking with you. Okay, But look at, what, look at verse 16, what Luke says. However, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't recognize him. Jesus said to them, hey, what's this conversation that you're having? What are you guys talking about? Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas gets a little bit snarky with Jesus. And he says, are you telling me you're the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? You like the only person not on social media? Like, check your Twitter, bro. Turn on the news. Like, you, you don't know? What, you, don't, you don't know about this? Well, they don't know who they're talking to, Right. I love the way Jesus plays it cool and says, What things? I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what you guys are talking about. And so, if I were to summarize the next few verses, the disciples go on to explain to this stranger who's Jesus how this Messiah, Jesus, the Redeemer of Israel, has been crucified. He was killed by the Roman government in three days. Uh, three days ago, he died on a cross and was buried. Now his body is missing, and we're kind of freaking out. And at this point, they've really lost all hope. So they explain this whole thing to Jesus, and look at his response in verse 25. He says, "Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, And the beginning with Moses and all the prophets?' He interpreted them in all the scriptures, that is the Bible, the things concerning himself. And look at their reaction. Skip down to verse 31. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I want you to pay attention to the fact that their eyes were opened when Jesus opened up the scriptures for them, okay? We see it again just a few verses later. This time he's with a larger group of disciples. Skip down to verse 44. Jesus is talking to this whole group of disciples in the upper room. And he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Thus it is written, meaning the Bible says that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay. If I were to resurrect from the dead and wanted to surprise my friends, I would probably have some sort of like explosion happen and then like horns and triumphal music happening. And then I would like emerge from the smoke and be like, I'm back suckers. Like (laughs) here I am. Right. Jesus shows up and teaches a class on how to read the Bible. Like how lame kind of is that? Like he shows up and in disguise, like incognito and like schools them in a lesson on what the Bible is, why it matters for their life and how to engage it. Like He obviously thinks that this is so important that we need this in our discipleship to him. He obviously thinks that this is crucial for us to experience the life we were made for. So he says, hey, let me take you on a tour through the entire Bible and just open it up for you. Look back at verse 44. I think this is important. Notice Jesus says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a classic Hebrew way of summarizing the whole Bible, which at this point would have just been the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so the first thing Jesus wants us to see when it comes to understanding the point of the Bible is that it's all about Jesus. Look, Jesus says in verse 26, the key to understanding the Old Testament, I know there's a lot of details in there. There's a lot of weird stuff you don't know what to do with, like a lot of weeds you can get lost in. Jesus says, don't miss the forest for the trees. The whole point of the Old Testament is, is building up to the suffering and the resurrection glory of this Messiah. And so according to Jesus, the, the Bible's not just a collection of just random stuff thrown together like my garage or your purse, ladies, or whatever. Your purse is worse than my garage, by the way. I, if it's anything like my wife's purse. Um, every, every detail, every single piece, every event is working together to tell a much larger story about Jesus. And so we're left with this fundamental truth that Jesus wants you to see this morning. Jesus is the key. That opens up the Bible and makes the whole story make sense. Jesus is the key. If you miss that, you'll get lost in what seems like a random sea of laws and sacrifices and census reports and all this stuff, and and you'll just be left going like, "This doesn't make any sense." I love uh, when my middle child nugs tells me stories because they are so random and they never make any sense. And I traveled this week, and I, I was out of town for several days, and I came home, and she told me this big story about how we made this big mess at Mallory's house because uh, our puppy peed in the floor because we were hungry so that we could go outside and play and because we had to take a nap. And I was like, that's great. I love it, baby. That's, that's awesome. Um, that's a really great story. And the whole time I'm going, like, I have no idea what she's possibly talking about, right? So many of us read the Bible as if it were written by nugs, like as if she's telling the story, (laughs) which would be a great translation uh, of the Bible. It's just random details, right? How does this hold together? Jesus says, man, don't miss the point. The Bible, I'll put this on the screen for you. The Bible in all its parts is telling one unified story that leads you to Jesus. It's all meant to lead you to Jesus, So no matter where you are in the Bible, you should always ask yourself questions like, okay, what does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about me and my condition as a human being? And how does this point me to my need for Jesus? Because the Bible in all its parts is telling one unified story that's telling you you need Jesus. Listen, when you start to read the Bible this way, it it not only changes how you understand the biblical story, but it changes how you understand your story. Um, The Bible starts to come alive as you kind of start to come alive to who God is, uh, what God is doing, what he is up to, who you are, who you were made to be. And I love the way Andrew Wilson says, he's got a little book called Unbreakable, which is a book on the Bible you can read in like one sitting. Um, And here's what Wilson says. He says, if you read the Bible as if it's mainly a story about Israel or about you, it's like reading with a cold heart and your eyes shut. When you discover that it's mainly a story about Jesus and God's purpose for the nations through him, your heart catches fire and your eyes are opened. That's what Luke says in verse 31, right? The disciples' eyes were opened and their hearts began to burn. Do you want to know what the point of the Bible is? The whole point of the Bible is to open your eyes and capture your heart with the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the reality of how much you need him. Now, if that's true, it kind of begs a question, and this is a question I think all of us have to ask. If you're in this room and you would, you would consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, you have to ask this question. If you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but maybe you're exploring Christianity, maybe you would call yourself a skeptic, maybe you're just here as a visitor to get a friend off your back because they keep inviting you, or maybe you're here because you came to see somebody get baptized. Like wherever you find yourself in the room, there's a question that this raises for us, that we have to ask. And in fact, it's a question Jesus actually explicitly invites you to ask in this passage. And the question is this, why do I need Jesus? Like, If that's the whole point of the Bible is that you need Jesus, the the obvious answer is why? Look at how Jesus poses the question in verse 26. He says, was it not necessary, I would underline the word necessary, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus encounters these disciples. They're sad, right? They're, they're downcast. They're upset that he was crucified. And Jesus says, I get that you guys are upset that I was killed, but like, this is what needed to happen, was it not? He says, this was necessary, was it not? Didn't you need me to do this? I, I, I want to invite you to put your eyes on that word necessary and underline it because it's a, it's a powerful little Greek word. Um, it's used in situations where there's no other option. And therefore, a certain action is required, like this thing has to happen. There's no other way. And so Jesus is inviting you to consider the reality that you desperately needed him to come and suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And the question is, why? Why do you need Jesus so badly, if that's the point of scripture? And to answer that, you actually have to rewind the story, which is why that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 27. Jesus asks you a question in verse 26. Hey, you need me, right? Now let me show you how much you need me. And in verse 27, he rewinds the story, goes all the way back to the beginning and just kind of surveys the entire Bible. He takes them on a little tour through the whole scriptures to kind of lay the foundation for why you need him. And so that's what I want us to do. I, we've been talking a lot about your imagination, so I kind of want you to use it this morning. And I kind of want us to leave this place and let's imagine ourselves on the road to Emmaus. And we're walking with Jesus now. He's opening up the scriptures for us. And we're just going to kind of follow him on this journey through the scriptures. I don't know all the like things that he hit, so I'm just going to stick to the high points, okay? Um, people have talked a lot about how you can read the Bible as one story with four big chapters, or you can think about the Bible as one play with four big scenes. And so um, I want to kind of just walk through those and follow Jesus on a tour through the scriptures. So... Let's rewind the story all the way back to the beginning. If you're going to understand your need for Jesus, you have to go back to the beginning. And so if we rewind the story, we go back to chapter 1, which we might title creation. Okay, I'll put that on the screen. There we go. We're in chapter 1 of the story. We're following Jesus, and he's in chapter 1, which is creation. And what you see in the beginning, this is back in, in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and what you see if you go back to the beginning of the story is that God created everything out of nothing. Um, He literally spoke the universe into existence. It's actually written kind of like a song in Hebrew. There's this refrain of God said, and it happened, and he declared it was good. He said, and it happened, and he declared it was good. And so he creates light, and water, and earth, and plants, and animals, and like mosquitoes. And I have no idea why, but he did. And he, he, he says, it's good. All of it's good. He makes all this stuff and says, it's good. And then all of a sudden... God decides to create a totally different kind of creature that he calls human beings, and he makes them male and female. He doesn't speak us into existence, but he actually gets his hands dirty, and he gets down in the dirt, and he kind of forms and shapes us and creates us. And so you, can, you see from the very beginning, God has this more of this intimate kind of personal relationship with human beings, and he creates us in his image, we learn in this chapter of the story. Um... In the same way that my kids look like me and they kind of bear the Breckenridge family resemblance, God makes human beings to resemble him in his image, to kind of reflect him and, and to represent him to the world. This is really a poetic way of saying that, that God created us to be like his children, to be dependent upon him, to live in close relationship and communion with him. He created us to be his friends and kind of be in this relational partnership with him and ruling over all creation. So if there's one thing you learn in the creation chapter, as Jesus is kind of walking us through it, is that you and I were created for communion with God. That's the theme in this this chapter. Adam and Eve, it's clear. They walked and they talked in intimate communion with God. They trusted Him. They were deeply connected to Him as the source of life, and all was good, like all was right in the world. Things go south, however, pretty quickly, when you get to chapter 2 of the story, which brings us to the fall. Chapter 2 is the fall. This foreign character, this serpent enters into the story. He lies to Adam and Eve. He questions God's love and his trustworthiness and his intentions. Does God really have your best intention in his mind? Does he really love you? Will he really take care of you? And Adam and Eve take the bait. They choose to believe the lie that God doesn't love me. He's not enough for me. He's not going to provide for me. And I would be better off on my own. And so that's exactly what they did. They believe this lie about God. And then they, they fail to trust him. And they take the fruit. And in that moment, they literally take their lives into their own hands. And what you see in the story is that the moment that we break trust with God, because when Adam not only has Adam and Eve done this, but all human beings have done this. We all see this in our story. I mean, the big reveal is this is all telling your story. The moment we fail to trust him, everything falls apart, and you see in this chapter that something deep within the human soul breaks. Um, The first thing you see in Genesis 3 that happens is that we become filled with shame. Humans become filled with shame, which is to say that um, we kind of lose our sense of significance and identity and self-worth. Shame is this thing, if you know anything about it, this, this really nasty thing in us that says I'm worthless. Like, if you knew the real me and you knew the truth about me, there's no way you could love me and accept me. And so for the first time in human history, Adam and Eve feel this. And they feel this, this, this compulsion to cover up and keep God and keep others from seeing the real them. And so they cover up their nakedness and they cover up their shame. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've seen that in my life in many places. There's a lot of masks and a lot of coverings that I have put on uh, in my life. Adam the entertainer, Adam the scholar, Adam the pastor, Adam the husband, Adam the dad. Just thinking that maybe maybe I can uh, put this mask on and, and find my identity and my worth in this place by performing in these roles. And it never works. Um, the next thing you see that happens is they become filled with guilt and fear, just racked with guilt and fear. One of the most heartbreaking verses... In the entire Bible comes from this, this chapter. And you see it in Genesis 3.8. It says, uh, When they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they ran and hid themselves from the presence of God. They ran and hid themselves. When they heard him coming, this is what my daughters do, right? Like when they know they're in trouble and I'm coming, as they, the, your kids do the same thing, they run and they hide from you, right? So think about it, man. Human beings went from, went from trusting God and walking with God and enjoying God to running from God and hiding from God, which is to say we went from closeness and connection to separation, which is the theme in this chapter. If we're just kind of following Jesus on a survey through the biblical story, this is where we're at right now. We go from closeness and connection to separation. We actually find out that we have to leave the garden. Like God says, you can't be with me anymore. Because God is holy, He can't dwell within the presence of sin, and so we find out that they have to leave the garden. And God takes these like awesome angels, like with like, swords of fire, and puts them standing guard in the garden, and says, "You guys can't come back in here." And so now the rest of the human story is kind of one of us wandering around east of Eden, trying to figure out who we are, and that's why we're left with questions like, "Okay, you know, who am I?" You ask yourself questions like, "Do I matter? Do I belong?" Can anybody love me and accept me? Do I fit in? And we try to answer those questions with like possessions, and performance, and other people's approval. Like all this is this is where this happens. The moment we become separated from God, this becomes our new reality. This becomes our new reality because we're no longer connected to the source of life, which is why God says ultimately this is all going to lead to death. And what you're kind of left with in this chapter is, man, there is no hope if God isn't gracious. And here's the good news. Here's what's amazing. Um, As soon as Adam and Eve sin, as soon as we break trust with God, like while the taste of the fruit is still on their mouth, on their lips, God comes looking for them. Like they've barely digested this stuff and God comes after them. And we see this powerful question in Genesis 3. God says, where are you? which is a geographical question, by the way. Uh, Not a geographical question, rather. It's a relational question. God's not asking a geographical question. He's not asking, like, where are you located? He can see them, like, hiding behind these bushes. He's not an idiot. It's like like every time, you know, my youngest child gets in trouble, she runs and hides, and she hides, like, underneath a chair with, like, her arms and, like, Superman, like, with her arms and legs sticking out of both sides of the chair, and I can totally see her. Like, I'm not an idiot. I can see her. And yet I walk in the room and I'll invite her to come out. Like, you know, Peach, where are you? I'm not asking that question because I don't know where she's located geographically. I'm asking that question because I'm inviting her to come out of hiding and to come close to her dad and receive grace. And the reality is God can see you this morning. He sees where you are. He sees where you're hiding. And he's always asking you the same question. Where are you? Where are you? This is where we're at in the biblical story. God's asking the question, where are you? And the reason he asks is because he wants you to draw close to him because that's what you were made for. So he calls us out of hiding. um, And uh, before Adam and Eve exit the garden, he makes this glorious promise. Um, In chapter 3, this leads us to chapter 3 of the story, which is called redemption. I'll put this on the screen for you. Chapter 3 is redemption. God makes this promise in Genesis 3.15. I'll put this on the screen. What's, what's fascinating is he makes the promise for us, but he actually speaks it to this serpent, which is interesting. And he says this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, uh, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. God says that this descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent and he's going to stamp out all sin and suffering. Okay? Okay. He's going, to, he's going to stamp out everything that's wrong with the world. He's going to make everything right. But you've got to notice that in this promise, this victory comes at a really high price. This Redeemer is going to experience, he says, the bite of this serpent on his heel. Right? So you're going to bruise the heel, or you're going to bruise his head, but he's going to bruise your heel. So this, this, this Redeemer is going to take a snake bite, basically. He's going to absorb the, all the venom and the poison of sin and death in our place, and he's going to die. Like, they understand exactly what this means. You get bit by a snake in this world, there's no, like, anti-venom poison, you're not going to go to the emergency room, like, you're going to die. And so, there's this kind of riddle, like, how in the world is this Redeemer going to save us from all that's broken in the world, and yet he's going to die? Well, apparently, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to come back from the dead, and he's going to somehow be victorious over this serpent. The scholars call this in Genesis 3:15 the very first gospel. It's the first time the gospel's ever preached in the Bible. God says, "Hey man, to prove my love for you, I'm going to send a redeemer who's going to save you from sin and death." and reconcile you back in a relationship with myself. And and the rest of the Old Testament is just the gradual unfolding of that promise. There's this expectation, right? It's building. Jesus says there's this building expectation of the suffering and the glory of the Messiah. And with every, you know, kind of episode of the Old Testament, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer until you get to the New Testament and you meet him and learn his name, which is Jesus. Jesus came to live the Perfect sinless life, we failed to live, died the death we deserve to die, so that, and then he rose from the dead, so that all who trust in him can be forgiven of their sins and reunited, which is really the theme of this chapter, reunion back into relationship with God. And that brings us to the fourth and final chapter, which is restoration. You, You get to the very end of the Bible, and you have this kind of return to Eden where. All of creation is restored to God's original intent, which is uh, unbroken, unhindered communion between God and human beings. So restoration is all about communion. Okay, I realize that's a quick survey, but here's the point that Jesus wants us to understand as he's kind of guiding his disciples on a a tour through the scriptures. Um, You go from Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is telling the story about how you were created for relationship with God. And how God will stop at nothing. He is is on a relentless pursuit to redeem and reconcile sinners and restore our communion with himself. That's why Jesus is necessary. That's why you need Jesus. Um, God loves you so much, he'll stop at nothing to forgive you and win you back to himself, even if it costs him his own life. And it has to. Listen, the reality that God is holy, um, God is holy meaning that he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. God can't just He can't just forgive us and sweep our sin under the rug and say, man, just, you know, forget about it. Somebody has to pay for it. And so what Jesus comes and he does is he comes on the scene and you've got this massive tab that you owe God. Like we we are indebted to God our lives because we've all sinned against him, right? And the wages of sin is death. And so we owe him. The only way to pay for this is with our life. And Jesus comes on the scene, takes your tab and pays for it. And then walks out of the grave proving that the check cleared. Like God wrote a check to pay the price for your sins. Jesus walks out of the grave, hands his father the receipt. And now that that means that anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ has been forgiven. Like your sin is paid in full. That's really good news, right? Would you agree that's really good news? It's even better than that though. Because Jesus didn't just die to forgive you. He died to reconcile you and bring you back to God where you belong. This is the whole point of the biblical story. Uh, forgiveness is the first step in the process of reconciliation. The whole Bible is about what God is doing to restore your communion with himself. I feel like often um, in our culture, we kind of reduce the gospel down to the mechanics of salvation. And we sort of stop at Jesus died on a cross to forgive me for my sins but listen, man, the cross is all about God's love for you and his desire for communion with you. The cross is, is serving this greater end, which is to bring you back home to God where you belong. It's what your heart was made for. It's what you're longing for, that you can't satisfy anywhere else. Peter says it like this, 1 Peter three eighteen. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, To God. So don't don't miss the climax of the story for what the story is really all about. The whole point of the cross is so that you can have life with God in His presence. And if there's one thing that I want you to take away this morning, this is kind of where I want to land. What does all this have to do with union with Christ? Okay, what does all of this have to do with union with Christ? And I'll put this on the screen for you. Union with Christ is the doorway to communion with God. Like none of this is possible apart from you being in Christ. The way you're forgiven and brought into the presence of God is by being in Jesus. And that is the gospel, by the way. The gospel is the good news that when you put your faith in Jesus, he unites your life to his and he joins his life with yours such that in this crazy, miraculous, mystical way, Jesus is now in you and you are now in Jesus and you now have access to the presence of God. You actually have communion with God himself. I could try to illustrate this for you. It's, it's probably going to break down, and in some ways, it's probably like trying to illustrate the, the Trinity, and it's probably like got heresy in it somewhere. So I'll just rely on the pastors and Kenny in the room to correct me uh, if, if there is. But um, a couple of weeks ago, we went on a, a tour of the Green County Jail with Don Crittenden. Jared, Jared talked about that uh, in his sermon. I think it was last week, and I didn't know this, that you're not allowed to take your phone inside the jail. That probably makes sense, so that way you're not like Instagramming prisoners and stuff, um, uh, which is kind of what I tried to do. I took my phone inside the jail with me and, and didn't realize that it was not allowed. Like you can have it on the outer part of the jail, but you can't take it into the inner part. And I must have missed the memo, and I have my phone in my pocket, and I take it with me inside the like inner part of the jail. And at one point I'm like, whoa, and I take out my phone to like take a picture of something, and Don's like, and, like, puts me in, like, a headlock and says, you can't do that. Like, you're, you know, like, you're going to get me in trouble. You're going to get me fired. Like, you can't. He reprimands me because I'm an idiot. And, and he says, you can't, you cannot have your phone in here. And so he takes my phone away and he keeps it. And I feel like a loser. Um, <laughs> my point, did you just say, did you just agree with me? I just to really yeah, very, yeah, very much, yeah. My point is this, man, because of our sin, we're not allowed in the presence of God. Like, you're not allowed. But because you're in Jesus, you now have access and communion to the presence of God. Like, you've got to understand this. It requires your imagination. Jesus has put you in himself, and he has ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and he has taken you with him. So that you are now, literally, right now, we are in the presence of God. Is that, that's mind-blowing to me. And that's not, I'm not making that up. That's what the scriptures say. Hebrews 6:19 says, "Jesus has taken us with him into the inner place of the temple, in the Holy of holies, where God sits enthroned, and you're now with Jesus there, before the face of God, in His presence. Uh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2: six, we are seated, right now seated in the heavenly places. So we're in two places with once, guys. Two places at once, guys. Well, three places. We're here. We're on the road to Emmaus, kind of, and we're in the heavenly places with God in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians two six. That's the gospel. The gospel. Don't miss the point in all the details. The reason God gave us the Bible is because He's in pursuit of you to bring you home to Himself. The reason Jesus came and died for you is not just to forgive you and declare you like neutral. Like, okay, you're forgiven, go on and kind of like, just don't screw up, but you can kind of just try to be good now. No, he came to bring you into the love and the presence of God where you belong. That's why you need Jesus. That's the whole point of the Bible. So I realize that's a lot. So what I want to do really quickly is just close with two practical implications, okay? Here's how this changes the way you read and engage the scriptures. And I'm going, to be, I'm going to be quick, okay? But I think this is really important for us as disciples in our journey of following Jesus, okay? Um, first is this. you got to read the Bible through the lens of union with Christ. If you don't read the Bible with a relational framework, it's going to mess everything up for you. And so when you read the Bible through the lens of union with Christ, it changes the actual expectations you bring to the Bible. You can come to the Bible actually expecting to hear from and commune with God because that's the whole point. That's why he gave you the Bible. And I love the way Rankin-Wilburn says it. I quote people because they say things better than me. So here's what he says. Um, The disciple of Jesus comes to the Bible not as a stranger to Christ, who is the central subject of all Scripture, but as one who is actually connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit as one who is really in the real presence of the risen Lord in the prayerful reading of Scripture. Meditating on Scripture can and should be a real-time experience of communion with the living Christ. So I want you to stop and imagine that for a second. The same Spirit who inspired the words of Scripture is now the same Spirit who lives in you. The one who spoke the words onto onto the page is the one who's now speaking them and applying them to your heart because He lives there in you, By faith, the gospel says. That doesn't mean every time you read the Bible, you're going to have this like mountaintop experience with God. That's not the way relationships work, right? Every time your spouse opens his or her mouth and talks to you, you don't become like overwhelmed with emotion and fall all over yourself unless you've, you know, only been married six months and the rest of you know that's not the way it works, right? So that's not not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is that union with Jesus means you can expect to hear from God when you read the scriptures, You can expect to commune with God because that's why he gave us the Bible. J.I. Packer says it like this. one of my favorite quotes. I've been using it for years. Packer says, why does God give us the Bible? Why does he reveal himself to us? Because he who made us relational beings wants in his love to have us as his friends. And he addresses his words to us, statements, commands, promises, as a means of sharing his thoughts with us. And so making the personal self-disclosure which friendship presupposes and without which it cannot exist. Let me, let me put that in simpler terms. Packer saying God wrote the Bible to you as a love letter to reveal himself to you, to tell him what he thinks about you, to tell you who you really are. And so you should read it and read it often and you'll experience his presence. Last uh, practical implication, how this changes the way you think about the biblical story and the way you think about your story is that reading the Bible through the lens of union with Christ helps you find your place in the story. Um, it reminds you that ultimately Jesus is the hero in the center of the story, not you. So if, if listen to this. If you don't read the Bible as a story about Jesus and what he's done to bring you to God, then you'll read the Bible as a story about you and what you must do to get to God. If you don't read the Bible as a story about Jesus and what he's done, you'll read it as a story about you and what you must do to earn God's approval and to earn his favor, which is to say you'll read the Bible as a book of rules instead of an invitation to relationship. And for much of my life, this is how I read the scriptures. It was a book of rules. The point of every story, the point of every command was, Adam, you got to try harder. You got to do better. You got to be like David or be like Moses or whatever, except for when they're screwing up. Don't be like them then. Uh, but when they've got like this big, gigantic faith, like you've got you've to be like that. And if you're not like that, then, then I'm not really sure I want anything to do with you. This is the way I read the scriptures for most of my life. And so I was filled with, you know, guilt, fear, shame, because I never felt like I could measure up. I never felt like I could justify myself and be good enough. And so I asked Jesus into my heart like a billion times, from like age nine to 23. And the truth is, I had missed the whole point. Uh, the Bible is not a story about how to earn God's love, it's a story about how loved you already are. It's a story that makes sense of your deepest longing for connection, and to be known, and to be loved, and to belong, and the Bible's trying to tell you that all of that is yours when you are in Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I just kind of want to, um, I want to kind of move from here into a time of, of Reflection and responding. And what, the way we do that each week is by taking communion. What this meal is doing is echoing the entire story of scripture in human history. Jesus came. He lived the sinless life we failed to live. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you could have life with and communion with God. That's why we call this meal communion. So we have four stations, uh, two on each side of me, two in the back. We have a gluten-free option over there if that interests any of you. The way we take communion here, by the way, is you just tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come back up. I'm going to invite you to stand, but just kind of stay engaged with, with me in this moment. Keep your heart kind of engaged. After you take communion, I want to encourage you to come back to your seat. Uh, We're going to sing another song. Uh, This is always a time of response. It's part of our worship service. It gives you space to kind of respond to what the Spirit is doing in you. And if you are trusting in Christ, if if you have made Him the center of your life and you see Him as the center of of your story, then we want to invite you to come and and celebrate in this meal. If you're in this room and you would say, man, that's not me. I'm, I'm not trusting in Jesus. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Jesus is asking you the same question he asked in Genesis 3, where are you? And he's inviting you to come and surrender your life to him and enter into relationship with him. And if you would do that, man, I would love to talk with you. Robert would love to talk with you. Luke, um, we would love to hear your story and walk with you through that. So I'm going to pray as our uh, communion servers come forward, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll celebrate together. Father, we do ask that you would come now and do what only you can do, Take, uh, take words that I've shared and truth that has been spoken and drive it deep into the human heart. Make it come alive. Um, use it to bring us into an encounter with Jesus. That's the whole point. That's what this is all about. So God, I pray you would awaken repentance and faith and, um, and joy and satisfaction that can only be found in realizing how loved we are in Christ. And do that for your glory and for our joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.